This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is a Radio.com original. I'm not even a convertible guy. I've never looked for a convertible. To me, it's the hard top roof line, uh, 57 Plymouth convertible. It just, it looks like a car with a tent on the top. And <laughs> so of course, in Canada, convertibles are just like, what the hell would you want one of those for? Yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody. We are back with a new edition of the Talking About Cars podcast, where it's all about everybody has a car story and a diversion from, frankly, what's going on in the outside world. A place for car people to get some fun car stories from celebrities and car personalities and others in the car industry. Consider binge listening to our shows to get some of the uh, shows you may have missed with some really cool car celebs. Hey, everybody, I'm Randy Cardoon, and this week... Hot Rod Bob Beck and I check in with our friend of the podcast from Alberta, Canada, Scott Newstead of Cold War Motors, where you can watch his car videos with a decided Canadian flair on YouTube. This being our first podcast recorded on the Zoom app, Cold War has been on for a bit longer than I thought originally. In part one of our two-part conversation with Scott, he told Hot Rod Bob Beck and I he had over 43,000 followers on YouTube. When I started, it was a it was a lot different thing, right? Like uh, a big channel on YouTube was kind of a hundred thousand, uh, and I, I set my goal arbitrarily doing some grade five math uh, at about thirty thousand, and uh, and at the time I you know yeah when you've got seven subscribers thirty thousand seems like a far far ways off and uh, but. I mean, 10, 10 years I've been doing it. And uh, I mean, there, there are channels bigger than mine that have been around for four, four months. So mm -hmm. uh, on one hand, I did end up with what I realistically thought that I would end up with is a small group of people who, who really like it and, and a very large group of people who can't stand it. I need to come up with the concept of... of seeking out these cars the way you do well i was doing it anyway i guess is the thing uh the whole thing with the youtube channel was that all i would have to do is start filming whatever i was doing anyway like the the youtube channel was really just filming what i do when i get up in the morning so it's never been something that i set out uh, with the intent of, of saying well this would be a good show let's let's make a show it was more like what we're doing every day for fun is better than most of what I'm seeing on YouTube. No, not, not to denigrate any of it, but 10 years ago, I was watching to, to see if there was anything that I was personally, uh, you know, that it was like really speaking to me and, I, and there was just a lot of stuff that was just seemed a little remote to me. And I thought, well, I guess I better put my money where my mouth is. And I thought maybe there's, maybe there's a tiny bit of space on YouTube for something that's a little bit esoteric and something that's more about having fun than it is about, uh, than, than it is about 
trying to be the most or the best or the biggest. And it's really, it came from that. I was hoarding cars anyway. And so, and then it became clear after a while that if you have this many cars, it's much easier to move them around if they run. So then it became about, can we get these dead junk cars to run without spending any money because I'm poor. <clears throat> and then that turned out to actually be kind of an interesting challenge when you take all the money out of it and all you're left with is a bunch of broken junk and, and some basic tools. Uh, it turns out that after I did a few, you can actually get just about anything to run. And then that started the, uh, the Will It Run series, which uh, I, uh, I don't think I will make anymore because every second video on YouTube is called Will It Run now and people think I'm copying theirs. So uh, I've kind of transitioned it a little bit more about building complete drivable cars and transitioning it a bit away from getting junk to run because I think I've got nothing to prove. But I think the next step for me was, especially when I realized that some of these cars, just to get them running, was taking a tremendous amount of hours. And I thought for that number of hours, why not have it finished with the car getting plates instead of the car just moving around in the yard? So that's kind of been the overall evolution of the thing. And then with the latest Plymouth project, I thought, well, let's really, uh, let's do something. I think just a lot of people have written what we do off as just a bunch of stoners goofing off. And I thought, you know, and I haven't really done much to discourage that. I admit, I thought, well, let's do something a little more uh, complex. And uh, that's where that project came about. Cause I was doing that stuff anyway, as well. And I just never really put any serious work on YouTube until the last few years. So if I understand what you're saying, you went from stoners goofing off, stoners actually building a really cool car based on combining two cars. Three. Oh, that's <laughs> right. You had that, uh, you had the four-door Plymouth. I forgot about that. Well, and again, uh, it was not a stunt. It was just, that was something I was doing anyway. I was going to do it anyway. And I thought, well, I bet you nobody else is doing this right now. And I mean, I've seen a few of the how to do bodywork videos on YouTube and they're really, you know, like stuffing fiberglass and Kleenex in the holes of your Honda Civic is not doing bodywork. Uh, but they had 3 million views on it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, let's see if anybody can actually do bodywork. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, here's, here's one that uh, would be difficult to dismiss as just a bunch of dummies goofing off. I did want that car. It's one of my favorite cars. And I, if I didn't have a YouTube channel, I'd be doing all the exact same work on that car that I am anyway. Which car was that? Oh, the, uh, the, the Plymouth Fury I'm doing, 1960 uh, Plymouth Fury hardtop. And the interesting thing about that is he started off with a 1960 Plymouth Fury hardtop and he needed, I guess the frame was all rotted out. And so you needed another frame and where you got the frame to replace that? Well, yeah, being uh, 1960 was the first year of the, of the unibody structures. It was not a frame per se. So when the bottom half of the Plymouth was beyond repair, you actually have to replace, you know, the rockers, the floor, the torque boxes, the frame rails, uh, et cetera. And, uh, and that's where the idea of the big unibody splice came in and having an understanding and having done collision for 30 years, I decided that we could back this car up 
the assembly line to where the assembly line would have branched off and the Plymouths go here and the Dodges go here is when we back up the structure to here and we just take it down here and we put the top of the Plymouth on it. And since the top of the Plymouth was all that was savable, uh, really there was no loss. I sold everything I didn't use off the Dodge and it went to a good home and, uh, and managed to save uh, the Plymouth using the, using the, the Dodge Dart, which came out in 1960 as uh, any, uh, Chrysler nerd would tell you based on the Plymouth shorter Plymouth wheelbase to give Dodge a low priced car. And so, uh, understanding that the Dodge Dart that came out in 1960 was essentially a Plymouth Fury chassis or, uh, or structure rather. And then when you got into it, you could see that there were tabs welded to the structure of the Dodge that had nothing welded to them, but they were all installed at the factory before the cars branched off. And so uh, it more or less, uh, it more or less went back in, like it was, uh, it was a little easier, um, you know, to understand how it was going to work when you see that all those brackets and stuff were there already to support the Plymouth structure. They just never had anything welded to them if it became a Dodge. See, it's so easy. Just a, more of an exercise in, in uh, yeah, just like a, a fun exercise in, in, in unibody, which was pretty, pretty new stuff for the time. And you could see 59 GM went to the shared cowl and chassis and I could do that same splice from a 60 Pontiac Laurentian into a 59 Biscayne or whatever. I could make a 59 Impala hardtop out of a 60 Pontiac sedan. It's the same chassis. It's the same platform, the same cowl, same windshield frame. And when you see, you know, when they started sharing all those components, it became, uh, these kind of splices become feasible. You can't splice a 54 Chevy onto a 54 Oldsmobile. There's just nothing common. No. But starting in 59, when GM really had to streamline their design process because Chrysler kind of kind of one up them. So GM, in order to get caught up by 59, slash a whole year off the design cycle, mm -hmm. they, uh, they decided they would share a common cowl. And that made, uh, that makes all of this stuff feasible starting in 59, but you can't put a 57, uh, you know, Oldsmobile on a, on a Chevy pan or vice versa, but you can starting in 59 or yeah, 59. We, we kind of joke around. I've got a 1948 Plymouth, but on the back, I've got the Dodge Chrome because in 48 Dodge needed a low cost car to compete against Ford. Mm -hmm. So they basically change the chrome on a Plymouth. Yes. So the back of my, my Plymouth says Dodge, and I love the, the reactions I get from people. Yeah. <laughs> because no one here in the States knows that. Well, of course, in Canada, we, because a lot of the smaller towns couldn't support both a Plymouth and Dodge or a Chevy and Pontiac dealer, uh, we got cheap Canadian Pontiacs built on Chevy platforms, and we got cheap Canadian Dodges, which is the one you just saw, which is essentially a Plymouth, uh, Plymouth car with just Dodge fenders and hood. Uh, and uh, and that goes back to the 1940s here for sure with Plymouth and Dodge. Yeah. yeah, and that's what grabbed me when I first started watching your videos. The fact that you'd be starting the cars up, but the cars you were dealing with were basically Plodges or Mayfairs <laughs> or whatever they were. And they were basically Plymouth bodies with uh, Dodge or DeSoto front clips. And that just to me... There's just not enough shows showing Canadian cars. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just a big, it's on my list of top 10 cars is to get kind of a, um, 
I don't know. I, I haven't quite figured out which one I'm going to get. The, the Pontiac GTO on a, on a, that looks like half a Malibu or something like that, that kind of thing. Beaumont, yes. Yeah, Beaumont's and, and that kind of thing. That, yeah. They had one at Bob's Big Boy, I want to say five years ago, a 64. Mm -hmm. But it has the Pontiac dashboard from those years. And it's basically on a, on a Chevy Bond. Yeah, and interesting, it does not say Pontiac or Chevrolet anywhere on the car, it's just Beaumont. And it has a little Canadian flag in the in the thing. And uh, it, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, the car the Canadian cars are fairly ubiquitous around here. And we, you know, uh, it's it's pretty posh if you have a proper American Dodge around here because eighty mm percent -hmm. of them were the Canadian Plodge cars. And yet when uh, uh, a lot of the rest of the world Sweden and Europe and, and the United States even will go out of their way to to find some of these weirdo Canadian model cars. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got I've got a, a someone I know's got a a Nova which was Canadian, mm -hmm. and for some dumb reason, in my estimation, he took off the Canadian parts, which were basically grill and taillights, and changed them to the Chevy because no one knew what an Canadian was. And then we've got guys in our Ford club, and I, I'm, I'm bilingual when it comes to cars, that have, one guy's got a 53 Meteor, mm -hmm. right? which is basically a different grill and taillights on a 53 Ford. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of neat to look at them. And then we look at Mercury trucks. We didn't have the Mercury truck yeah, in sure. the States. You had it in Canada. Oh, yeah, guys like those tailgates down there just because it's yeah. a weird thing. You, know, you mentioned George Barris. If you look at some of the cars he did in the early 50s, uh, some of the shoebox cars, they have uh, meteor grills in them, which was mm -hmm. a bullet. It's got kind of a refrigerator-style uh, grill in it. And uh, that was, I mean, pretty easy way to look like a custom car when nobody's seen the meteor, but it just bolts right in. I was yeah. actually starting to look at some of these. I would go online and, cause I have to look up now every year of certain said cross car, uh, so to speak. And okay, Bob, you've seen it at uh, some of the shows. There's a Chevy El Camino 59. The guy has the trunk go all the way over the back. Yeah. Okay, the front grill has the lights, but they're instead of being like next to each other, like Chevy's, there's a light and then it's like way out here. Right. That's basically one of the mercury grills if i'm not mistaken or something like that it was he it looks exactly like one of the um cars like a 1960 meteor or something like that yeah i believe it was a 61 62 meteor yeah yeah that he pulled it oh, out i know the car you mean yeah that's 61 meteor yeah does it yeah. have a little star between the lights yeah yeah yeah, yeah weird, weird yeah. car yeah and it has uh, the the meteor taillights are strange too because you can see that the round pressing in the quarter panels there where they would have put the big Ford taillight and yet they put this weird check mark taillight in there and then they just yeah. blanked out the rest of the thing it looks ridiculous but that's, <laughs> that's how they did them yeah some yeah, of the I, I, stuff it's like did you guys just have like 20 minute coffee break to come up with this <laughs> yeah well you know i've never figured out why they did that i mean it's not like canada's across the pond or something you're you're next door to us you're, why did we What's why that? did we make things unique like that and I it worked for the, General Motors and didn't figure it out. It, it was just so that uh, in small towns, you could support a Mercury dealership uh, where, but only if it had a low price car to sell. And 
generally Ford and Mercury dealerships are not the same building. So they would have Mercury, but then they would take the Ford car and they would make a cheap version of it and they would sell it as a Monarch, which is a Canadian Mercury, which was basically their low end Ford alternative and ditto with the Plodges. You could still buy the American Dodges here, but if there was a Dodge dealership in a small town, people would drive to the next town and just buy a Plymouth. So it was all about offering a cheapo version. They did it with the Canadian Pontiacs, which are essentially Chevy Biscaynes mm -hmm. uh, on the same chassis and same, uh, we got bigger six banger engines in the Canadian Pontiacs. But uh, it was mostly about uh, uh, allowing uh, a dealership of Mercury's or Pontiacs or Dodge to sell a low price car. And alternatively, if you had Monarchs, or which one was it? I can't even remember. No, Meteors were sold at the Mercury dealership and Monarchs. If there was only a Ford dealership, they had an expensive Ford called the Monarch, which was essentially a Mercury with some weird grill in it. And they'd sell that at the Ford dealership. So it was really just about allowing them to have half as many dealerships, but still cover all the same price range. Mm. And then okay. starting in 1960, that stuff became prohibitive really especially when dodge started offering their own low price car all the canadian weirdo stuff goes away in 1960 for chrysler and then a couple of years later i think the last meteors are 64 something like that mm -hmm. somewhere in there and then after that uh, i believe you'll find that mercury offered a low price car anyway with the advent of the mid-size and smaller cars right it just became it became you know too complex to keep maintaining that many different models so by the mid 60s it's all gone so it's kind of a fun little 10 12 year period in history where they had these weirdo cars and a lot of it went to europe too uh not dodges but DeSotos. you see DeSoto <laughs> diplomats and stuff and they're just four-door plymouths so let's let's talk a little bit about the show and where you're at. You're getting pretty much toward the end of the 60 Plymouth. How's that coming along and when do you expect it to be done? Well, it would be done already, except that I'm still doing customer stuff. Mm. Excuse me. Um, the Plymouth, the worst of it is behind me for sure. Uh, it's all painted and, and going back. Uh, going back together. I have to say it looks great. You've done, you oh, do an incredible yeah, job. Very, very great paint job. It, uh, uh, the thing when you do something like this and you put it out there for everybody to see and and criticize with, you know, whether or not they know what they're talking about. I mean, in some ways it made the car better because I was very conscious of, well, if you do that, some of you're going to have to hear about it. So yeah. I made sure that the standard, uh, and it kind of snowballed on me. And it kind of bit me in the ass because the car was supposed to be just like a funny, slightly cooler version of the of the Fraser, which was going to be like just thrown together. I even considered leaving it all just Frankenstein welded in four different colors. I thought that might be really funny. But then I thought trying to pitch that to Haggerty when you want to insure it is going to be difficult because it looks like a, a demolition derby car. Mm. So, and since 95% of the work was the sheet metal, it could, I, I mean, I, I went from welding to finished paint in, in three weeks. So that extra three weeks doubled the value of the car and that's why it's painted. I wanted it to be good too, because I got to stand beside it when somebody says who did the paint. So uh, I wanted it, I'm kind of all or nothing, like the Fraser is just a horrible looking thing, but I never, it doesn't matter to me because I didn't do it. You know what I mean? Like it can be ugly because I didn't put that paint job on, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> But so if I, it's one intend, that I, it's got to be decent, yeah. You intend to keep it, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
no, I would never do that for a customer. Like, no way. (laughs) Uh, It's too much work. And, uh, you know, I I would just tell them what I tell everybody, just go buy a good one. Like I'm only doing, I did that just for the challenge and for the fun and to save the car. But, but for me, uh, I did my brother's car. We spliced it the same way. Um, and, uh, you know, what do you have? Oh, he's got a 69 Ford Fairlane that, uh, his old high school car that he bought when we were like, he bought it from the junkyard when we were kids and, uh, had it sitting around at my place. And I was like, either restore this or scrap it because it's been sitting here for 10 years. So we decided that was the one and it was, it was like the fury. There was just nothing left of it. And I said, well, just go buy a four door. And he found a really nice low mileage running, beautifully running four door for 900 bucks. Uh, and we just scalped it and, and put the top of his car on that. And, uh, it, it turned out beautifully and he still, it looks brand new. Is the support back? Oh no, this is a, it's a hard top. Just, it was, okay. we wanted the fastback when we were kids, but there was a, a just a two door hard top in the junkyard. Uh, not even a 500. I think it was just a plain fair lane with a 302 dark blue with a white vinyl top deluxe hubcaps you know a real mom's grocery getter kind of car he ended up just you know, it's your first car i think he paid 150 bucks for it and, oh, okay. and, uh, but all the years later you get sentimental about it and then he's like, oh, okay well, let's fix it up well i mean we looked underneath it and it had been in an accident and it was it was just garbage like you would never do a car like that car is you know only sentimental value it does not have any actual intrinsic value uh, but nevertheless, it's kind of fun because when you go to a show, you see 2429 Fastback Cobra with all the rally, but there's only one two-door grandma car with bias ply white walls and hubcaps <laughs> on it. And the, the satisfaction I get is, is that it, it's, it's better than all the restored muscle car ones. We're talking to Scott Newstead from, of course, Cold War Motors. Scott, I know you're also working on the Citroen. You've been working on that. Do you have another project that you want to take in that direction or what's the plan? Um, well, the next project, the, the Citroen is for my friend in Montreal, the DS. I'm a, an SM for myself that I'd still probably want to get very close to finish before I tackle any other big jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next customer car will be a Rover three liter for my, well, not really customers for my sister. She said, I want the most British car ever. And I said, well, there's only one car. <laughs> it has to be a Rover three liter like the Queen had. So uh, we've got that to do for her. And uh, then, I don't know, I've, I've narrowed it down to about a half a dozen of my own that I am going to pick from. And I may, I, I don't know how I'm gonna decide. It's, uh, I got the Model T, I got the 41 Plymouth, the 60 Ford 250, the 50 Buick hardtop, the 50, what else? Is, oh, I've got a, a Hudson Pacemaker 1951. Mm-hmm. and another Kaiser, 1951 Kaiser, all of which are fairly easy projects. And then I have uh, 1957, 58, and 61 Plymouth hardtops that I also want to build. And they're, they're, of course, those things are all rod boxes. So the big body job will probably be, the next one will probably be 57 uh, Plymouth hardtop car I've always wanted. I want to, eventually I want to have 57 through 61 Plymouth all two-door hardtops. Wow. All the big wing cars. Yeah, I love that stuff. Oh, that was the first cars I was really like just just could not stop staring at. You know, just always always <laughs> loved fifty nine GM cars. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, 
I would love yeah. a 59 Buick flat top. If I could get my hands on an Electra 225 four-door flat top, I'd be very happy. Isn't that the panoramic window on the back? Yeah. Yeah. That big, it. yeah, wraparound. Really wow. cool. Uh, 59 Buick would be, or a 59, I have a 59 Biscayne, but it's not really viable. I would put together a nice 59 Chevy any day or 59 Buick. Those are probably my favorite General Motors cars. Very Just good. how outrageous they are. Yes. <laughs> that's very good so when you when you are done with the Plymouth are you going to like put it in the garage or are you going to keep it outside the oh, it'll be inside yeah that one will stay dry yeah. you're going to have to build some more garage it's in the rain, but I'm building more garage right now yeah are you? <laughs> yeah. yeah I've uh, got another well, it'll hold another four or five cars at a time yeah. how, how many cars do you currently have <laughs> um as of today <laughs> uh, i don't i i'd have to count but i think it's just north of 60 i think give or take might be if it's less than 60 that's good i'm trying to get it down to 50 and keep it there uh the <laughs> trouble is when you if you're going to restore one you always end up buying parts cars and i don't get rid of the parts cars until the one i was building has plates on it so a few of them will go. I got a couple I can get rid of once the 60 is finished. Uh, I've got, you know, but I have you know, seven 57 Plymouth hardtops right now. And, and wow. uh, this type of, uh, you know, I've got 11 Citroens, but only two with plates on them. The rest of them are projects or, or, or parts cars or whatever. It just, it's one of those things when you, when you know if, if people know that you buy them they start showing up on their own and uh, the stuff that i put on my little lot is uh is just whatever you know it, it's supposed to look like an abandoned used car lot from 1965 so if i find something that really would work like something that i think would really suit the place like that 57 dodge four-door sedan you know it's, i didn't really need it but uh you know when you clean them up and you put nice tires on them and you park them, it looks cool. You know? See, when you have places to put the cars, you can probably get away with that stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and I didn't buy an acreage because I like mowing lawn. Yeah. Well, you know, I looked at that 57 as you were taking it off, well, as you went to look at it and took it off the trailer. And it does look pretty good. It still looks like it has the original interior on it. Uh, most of the trim is still there, which is cool. Uh, other than the top of the front fenders and the and the uh, sills, mm -hmm. the rust really isn't all that bad on that car. That mm -hmm. could be an interesting machine. Yeah, um, it could. Uh, I mean, anything could be saved. It is pretty poor. Like, there's no rockers. There's no floor. You know, typical quarter panel rot. Uh, but it always comes down to the same thing. It's the same amount of work to fix a two-door hardtop. Yeah. And so one's worth 10 grand when you're done, one's worth 35 and one's, and it's more, especially with 57, eight, nine, uh, the four doors had a completely different roof line. Uh, they were a completely different car. And whereas a 59 Chevy four door sedan actually looks pretty good. And a 59 Chevy four door flat top looks pretty cool. But uh, because they use the same windshield height and stuff as, as the two doors, but the four door Plymouth, uh, I mean, again, uh, if I've got 10 of them, they're not really that rare. And uh, yeah. 
And so despite how complete it is, uh, you know, nice solid ones are only a few thousand dollars and drivable ones are only 10 to 12. So when we're talking about doing $40,000 worth of bodywork on one, yeah. the car, I mean, if, if my dream was to have that car, I would do it. But mm-hmm. uh, in the end, I, uh, in the, particularly in the case of the, and I'm not a four door hater, I have lots of four door cars. But in the case of those, to me, the roof line, that's two door only the lower windshield to me, those cars, uh, there's a really, there is a hard line on those cars between four door parts cars and two door hard tops. I don't even, I'm not even a convertible guy. I've never looked for a convertible to me. It's the hard top roof line, uh, 57 Plymouth convertible. It just, it looks like a car with a tent on the top. And <laughs> so of course, in Canada, convertibles are just like, what the hell would you want one of those for? Yeah. <laughs> Scott Newstead of Cold War Motors. Hey, don't forget to join us next Thursday when we talk about what it's been like in the coronavirus era for Scott, the dogs, and his agents in part two of our two-part podcast. Thanks for listening to us on Radio.com, KNX1070.com, Stitcher, and a lot of other different places. You can also share our show on social media. Subscribe. It's absolutely free. Leave a comment, and if you're on iTunes, rate us, review us. Thanks in advance for helping our podcast grow. Our website is talkingaboutcars.net. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And did I mention to subscribe? Yeah, share or retweet or both. And remember, let this be the start of you binge listening, talking about cars. Like, what else are you doing right now, right? Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon for Hot Rod Bob Beck. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars. This has been a Two Tired Guys production.